Hey, Soakers, welcome to Bath & Body Parts. Last week, we told you about Elizabeth Haysom and Jens Soaring, a couple that had an intense relationship which ended with the murder of her parents. Today, we pick up where we left off in the trials of Elizabeth and Jens. Yen's lawyer asked Elizabeth if her mother had slept with her and abused her, and she said yes. Now, in her own trial, she had stated that her mother did not sexually abuse her. And in Yen's trial, she said that she never stated that it was sexual, but that she had been abused by her mother. And like you said, she did come out years later saying that there was sexual abuse for eight years. But during these trials, that never came out. Elizabeth said that she wanted Jens to kill her parents. Jens' father, Klaus, actually took the stand in Jens' trial, and it was very sad to see his dad up there. And Jens acknowledges that his father did not do anything wrong and that all of the involvement that Jens has in this case is all entirely his own fault, but that it's very clear that due to his involvement, the family has been through a lot and, you know, fractured his relationship with his dad and with his brother and that his mother actually drank herself to death. It does come out during this trial that the judge was actually friends with the Haysoms for 40 years. And he he acknowledges that and he states that, you know, it's not going to affect him personally that he can take that out of it. It's just very interesting little factoid. Yeah. We don't really know how closely he was tied with the family. Sure. He definitely seems to imply that it was more just a casual acquaintance. Yes. We don't know that, but this does get emphasized a lot by Yen's supporters. Sure. On June 21st, 1990, Yen said in court that he was innocent and that he did not kill the Haysoms. But they did find him guilty and gave him two life imprisonment sentences. Now we're going to jump forward to 2010. Because like we said, this case takes place over a lot of years with a lot of things contributing to it. December 18th, 2010, traces of someone else's DNA was identified at the crime scene. Yes, it's a an unknown male DNA was found at the crime scene. Yes. And the governor of Virginia in 2010 stated that he wanted Jens to be deported to Germany. And so at the time, Jens is thinking about what he was going to do when he got to Germany. And he said that he was actually interested in selling burglary alarms. And he said, who better to sell you a burglary alarm than someone who has spent the last 20-something years in prison? (laughs) So like... (laughs) This is very interesting. But during this time, there was an election and there was a new governor who was appointed in the state of Virginia. And the new governor denied Jens's deportation. So he was going to stay where he was at. Now, Haysom says, even 20-something years later after the trial, she said that Jens was as guilty as she was and that they both deserved to be in prison. 
And in the documentary, she does not grant an interview and they had asked several times, but she does not appear in the documentary at all. And then we're going to jump forward to 2019 when Jens and Elizabeth were both actually paroled and she was deported to Canada and he was deported to Germany. Yes. So this was a big victory for a lot of people. Jens had a huge following who believed he was innocent. They were often pushing for his release for many, many years. They petitioned multiple presidents. Then they met with Obama. They contacted politicians and news outlets. Yeah. And they're all interviewed in the documentary. They very, very adamantly believe that Jens was innocent, that he kind of got roped in after the fact. Yep. And so even though he wasn't officially pardoned, the fact that he had been paroled and that he was free to live was a big deal. But they did continue and still continue to proclaim his innocence and request that pardon. Yes. But then in 2020, something very interesting happened. One of the Scotland Yard detectives who took Yins's confession in the 80s, Terry Wright, wrote to the governor who was considering the pardon, and he wrote a very detailed account attempting to discredit the theory that Yins was innocent. And he actually published it online. You guys, it is 454 pages long. I will put it in the show notes. <laughs> it's long. <laughs> I read the entire thing. <laughs> <laughs> this this case is one of those where like once you start looking into it, you go down the rabbit hole for it sure. Is, it is. So I'm going to try and give you some of the highlights. Obviously, I cannot give you all of the details of a 454-page dossier, but I, I'm going to try and hit the biggest points that he says and then sort of gloss over some of the smaller things. So the first major area Wright focuses on is the DNA evidence that came out. And I think that it really goes to show how physical evidence can be interpreted different ways and how it can be spun. Yes. And this gets a little complex, but it's really important. So I'm going to kind of high level it here, but just stick with me through it. If you do read any of the document, I think that Wright does a really good job of simplifying the evidence. It's complicated evidence, but he kind of comes at it several ways. Sure. And it's very well written the way that he sort of goes back and recaps and prefaces everything. So when this DNA evidence came out and it said an unknown male contributor that does not match Yenz's DNA, this is a huge deal. And everyone on Yenz's side is like... That proves it. That's it. This is it. This is it. This exonerates him. But it's a lot more complicated than that. So there were two reports that get involved in the DNA discussion. One was the original blood report in 1985. And, of course, at the time, they were not testing DNA, just blood. And this report was made by serologist Mary Jane Burton. And then in 2009, the DNA report comes back. So these are two separate reports. But the DNA report was conducted on swabs taken which also contained the original blood samples at the scene. There were eight swabs taken, six of which identified type A blood, one of which identified type O blood, and another one which was probably type O blood, although there was a discrepancy in Burton's report. She recorded type O in her notes, but listed type A in the table of results referring to the same sample. She did later testify that it was type Oh, that's very complicated. If there's it's very complicated, if you get one letter wrong, my goodness, <laughs> a, a huge deal. But either way, type O and type A were identified, so it's not sure. necessarily the biggest of deals. 
Now, Derek Hasem is type A and Yens is type O. And so a lot of the argument from Yens's side is, hey, this evidence exonerates him because it proves that this type O blood did not come from him because it had different DNA. Mm-hmm. That is very emphasized by a DNA expert on Yenza's side named Moses Shanfield. However, in Wright's report, he kind of breaks it down a little bit. All eight of the samples, the ones from the type A and the ones from the type O, contain DNA that matched an unidentified common male. Okay, now at first, that made no sense to me. But it's important to note that blood and DNA are two different things, which kind of gets overlooked in this discussion by Shanfield a lot. Sure. But just because a swab is taken, if it's tested for blood and then it's tested for DNA, it doesn't mean that the DNA is coming from the blood, just that they were tested on the same swabs. So it's very possible that my DNA could get into somebody else's blood if I murder them, for example. And so the swabs, it doesn't mean that it comes from the blood. Sure. So obviously, there's two different blood types here. So it's sure. not, the, the DNA, though, on all eight swabs is identical. But what I'm getting at here is it doesn't mean that the DNA came from the type O person. Right. Which is what Yinz's side says. They, they say, oh, look, these two samples of type O blood have an unidentified male right. DNA. Right. But that same DNA was on the other six samples that are the type A. Yes. So we have, you can't match the blood type to the DNA. Yes. There is absolutely unidentified common male DNA that does not belong to Yinz. However, we don't have Derek Hasten's DNA. His DNA was never tested because he died in 1985. So Wright's argument is that more than likely that DNA belongs to Derek Hasem. Sure. And it's fully possible that it does because there's nothing that says that it's not. So Wright kind of discredits, not discredits, he just says that the DNA report doesn't say what Jens's side says that it proves. Sure. Because obviously Derek Hasem's DNA would be there. And it makes sense that more than likely that is his DNA. Sure. So next, Wright focuses on a luminal issue that came up with the rental car. At one point throughout the course of the investigation, Chuck Reed goes to check Elizabeth's story. And her story, if you recall, after she got out of the Rocky Horror Picture Show, was that Jens picked her up and he is in the rental car that they had rented. And Mm -hmm. he has a sheet covered with blood, and, and there's lots of blood. blood. Yeah. And one of the big things that Yenz's supporters emphasize is that Chuck Reed then goes and checks the car with luminol and that there was no blood. And remember, Chuck Reed is like, you know, luminol, yep. luminol, yes. you can't get rid of the blood. You can't yes. really get rid of the blood. Okay? Now, Wright says that Reed didn't check the car thoroughly enough, which Reed also agrees with because he primarily only checked the driver's side area because that's what he was told to check. But Wright actually says that luminol is not perfect science the way that we think that it is. It's not definitive elimination or confirmation of blood. It's just a tool. You can get false positives. You can get false negatives. It's just part of the package of physical evidence. And he also says that luminol can be mixed incorrectly and that lighting can impact it. So that if you are looking at luminol during the day, you might not get the most accurate results. That's very interesting because until this case, it's like yes. luminol is a tell-all, be-all 
you know, yes. and you watch any crime show, there it is, you know? Yes, it's very heavily emphasized. And, you know, again, it really kind of reminds me of like the staircase where there's multiple experts that talk about the same evidence and talk about it in totally different ways, you know? Yes. I think that physical evidence can sometimes be trickier than we think that it is. Most definitely. I was very interested in this discussion of luminol. And again, if you are a reader, this 454-page document, pretty good. <laughs> Learned a lot of stuff. Learned a lot of stuff about DNA. Lots of stuff, right? Love it. So Elizabeth said when she talks about this rental car, she actually told investigators that Jens gave her a bottle of Coca-Cola and told her to go clean the blood out, and she did. Okay? Now, Wright says that it's actually fully realistic that she could have removed the blood with the Coca-Cola. And of course, Yin supporters say that there's absolutely no way. I'm not sure how I feel about this because I don't have any way of knowing how much blood was supposed to be in the car. Right. You kind of get a few different stories on that. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that a bottle of Coca-Cola could remove a ton of blood mm -hmm. spotlessly perfectly. Sure. But if it was mostly on the sheet and there was maybe not that much in the car, it's possible. Either way, Wright also says that the rental car, by the time this story comes out and by the time that it gets checked, it would have already been rented out multiple times and cleaned multiple times. Yeah. And so he says that that really calls into question the entire luminal situation with the car. Now, Wright also focuses on Yenz's claim that the reason why he, quote, falsely confessed is that he believed he had diplomatic immunity. And Wright says that this is pretty much a lie because Yenz never brought this up at first. And in fact, a witness who met Yenz in prison while he was awaiting trial actually said that he was the one who gave him the idea of going back to Germany for a trial. Oh. And so that this wouldn't have been part of his consideration in making his confession. Okay. Yeah. And it's really interesting to kind of trace the change in stories. And I remember Wright mm -hmm. was there. He was one of the arresting officers. So he was there at the false confession. So his insight into it is super interesting. Yeah. <laughs> this is one that would almost be a more minor, because I'm not going to go into detail of everything that he says. Sure. This is 454 pages of him just discrediting everything that Yin's ever says. <laughs> sure, sure. And some of them are bigger mm -hmm. and some of them are less important, right? And this would be one that I would almost not necessarily mention, except that I have to because it becomes so weird. So Yin's talks a lot about this statement that he made to the police where they ask him if it is possible that he would consider pleading guilty to something he didn't do. And Yin says, quote, I think it's possible, yes. And that transcript is shared a lot from Yin's. It's in his books. It's in, you know, everything that his supporters kind of bring out because they say, oh, that's him saying that he was about to give a false confession. But Wright right. was there. And he says, no, that's not what was happening there. He actually says that Jens was kind of very adamant about separating the idea of the murders from the, quote, atrocities, as he called them, that happened after. Because it's been shown that somebody kind of either went back or stood over the bodies that had already been brutalized and 
continued to slice Derek and Nancy's throats. And that was a big consideration in the death penalty because it was so brutal and it was so... So much overkill. An overkill, exactly. So at the time when Jens is giving his confession, he's trying to see, according to Wright, he was asking if they could be separate charges, essentially. Okay. The atrocities and the actual murders. So he's confessed to the murders by this point already multiple times. Mm -hmm. But now he's asking if the atrocities can be a separate charge and he says that he didn't do that. He says, he told police that Annie Massey, the neighbor, gathered people and came into the house after he left to practice voodoo black magic witchcraft on the bodies. Wow. Okay. Wow. I don't know why Yins and Elizabeth are so obsessed with voodoo and black magic. <laughs> like, okay. <laughs> I don't know in what world this Annie Massey story makes sense, but I think Jens, at the time of this false confession, really did not want to be tied to the sort of mutilation of the bodies. But I will say, on the transcript, there is, he does keep asking about the atrocities. He keeps talking about them as separate. But most of the actual conversation about Annie Massey happened off tape. He does allude to it several times during the stretch of questioning, but he really doesn't say her name a lot. But right is insistent that this went on over the course of four days, that he kept saying this was Annie Massey. He said that she had seen him, all of this. Either way, it's really interesting because Jens never talks about it again. Yeah, I was going to say. Ever. It never gets brought up. And in fact, Wright says that the only people that even know about it are the investigators that were there at that questioning. So if we didn't have enough like stories changing, right? I now know, we're having right? this like really sensational accusation <laughs> that's only mentioned once. <laughs> There's so much. So Wright also talks about this ice cream thing that comes up. In one of Yenz's books, Mortal Thoughts, it's very interesting because he criticizes the police for not diving in deeper with Elizabeth or not confirming her alibi with him. And he says that there is a, quote, informal interview that happened with investigators and Elizabeth where they asked her what her father's favorite food was. And she said ice cream and then realized her mistake because Derek Hasem was eating ice cream the night of the murder. Now, this is very interesting. Wright actually says that this is more evidence that Yens is guilty, but he's slipping it into the book trying to say that Elizabeth is guilty. But the thing is, no officer notes talk about ice cream. It wasn't listed in the autopsy reports. However, there was something that officers did note that looked like ice cream that was brought up when questioning him but it's not ever really talked about. It's not listed as ice cream. Wow. <laughs> oh, man. And it's certainly, it, it's on the table. So yeah. it's certainly not listed as Derek Hasem was definitely eating it. Sure, sure, sure. So wow. either this is a complete made-up thing. Right. Elizabeth told him about the ice cream and then he kind of planted it into his mind and regurgitated it later. Sure. Or... He knows Derek Hasem was eating ice cream because... He was there. He was the murderer. (laughs) Right. 
Now, we don't know if this was dropped in in the course of interrogations. There's a lot of possibilities there, yeah. but it's really interesting that he chooses to put this in his book as attempted evidence yeah. that Elizabeth is guilty when no one else has ever talked about the ice cream. Yeah. And he would have no way to know about the ice cream unless somebody either told him or he was there. Wow. Yeah. Wow, wow, wow. Guys, this this report is crazy. I stayed up all night reading it. <laughs> 450 pages. <laughs> If you'd like to support the podcast, get access to bonus content and extra mini true crime cases, plus get access to our exclusive Bath and Body Parts bath bombs, we'd love to have you join our Patreon as a soaker, super soaker, or bath bomber. Visit patreon.com slash bath and body parts to learn more. Wright also dives into the big alibi question. You know, who stayed in Washington, D.C.? He points out that Elizabeth gave a lot of details to police about what she did in D.C., but kept very vague about the crime scene, you know, whereas Jens was the opposite. He was very much like vague details about what he was doing, Mm -hmm. you know? Now, remember, whoever stayed was supposed to make it look like they were both there because there were two movie tickets purchased, room service for two. Like, they're trying to prove that they were together, even though that story changes real fast for both of them. Jens's name was on the room service receipts, but Wright says that it gives more credence to Elizabeth staying because she would have signed his name to make it look like he was there. But if he had stayed, he would have signed her name. Which makes sense because if you're trying to give an alibi for the other person, you're not going to sign your own name on the receipt. Of course, that's speculation. Yeah. I mean, but it does make sense. It does make sense. He also points out that in the, quote, alibi timeline written by Christine Kim, there is a phone call and it says that a person named Beth answered. Now, Jens never referred to this call when answering what he supposedly did in Washington, D.C., but Elizabeth did. She said that she forgot her PIN number and called her dorm room and a girl named Beth, who was a suite mate, answered. Phone records do verify that a call was placed from the hotel at this time. And Wright also tears apart the whole drug alibi thing because who was going to concoct such a complicated alibi for this drug debt situation? It really doesn't make any sense. Yeah. And Jens also claims that he didn't participate in writing the alibi document, but his handwriting does appear on a paper that was stapled to the timeline. And Wright maintains that there's nothing weird about Christine Kim helping with the timeline. <laughs> That's where I'm going to okay. disagree with him. I, um, I, I'm on board with a lot yeah. of what he says because he's yeah. clearly, he was there. He was like engaged in a lot of it. Yes. But he's like, why wouldn't Christine Kim help write down everything? Uh... <laughs> I feel like Christine is like this big puzzle piece something's going on with her and we're never going to know. You know, and and that's not to say that she knew about the murders or anything like that. They easily could have told her that, you know, something happened and we need to prove that we were here. But I do think it's a little strange to just say, like, why wouldn't she help? And, like, even just what were they acting like with you when they were making this? Like, I want to know from her perspective these things. It would have made a lot of sense for her to be called to the stand, in my opinion. And then 
Wright talks about this joint diary. So Jens and Elizabeth had written a diary together while they were on the lamb. And in one of the early entries, this is kind of like the very beginning, right after that initial interview that sort of triggers them to flee. Mm-hmm. One of them writes that Jens was nervous about fingerprints being left on a mug giving him away. And this is in Elizabeth's handwriting. Now, Jens says he agreed to have that written in the diary to help support his false confession, which okay. I feel like is a stretch. Yeah. Yeah. And Elizabeth says that Jens controlled everything that was written in the diary. And Wright points out that Elizabeth actually makes some spelling mistakes early on. And Elizabeth says that she made these mistakes and Jens sort of took over writing in the diary. And that does track with the handwriting. Okay. And then later on, Jens writes about sexual issues with Elizabeth, like really things that Elizabeth would definitely not have been involved in writing. So that does sort of lend some credibility to her story that he took over the writing early on and that she never had a part of it. Sure. And it's very clear that this fingerprint thing, it's in there for sure. And to believe that Jens was never there... You have to believe that he agreed to have that written into the diary to back up his false confession. Right. You have to believe that if that's the story that you fall on. Now, on the sock print, I will say this is the other place where Wright loses me a little bit because he defends the sock print. Okay. Most of what he says in the document is pretty compelling, but he does point out that Yinz's side says that the person who gives the evidence about the the sock print is just a tire guy and that is basically a hobby for him to do footprints. And that's not the case. And Wright does point that out. He was actually brought unofficially with the FBI. He did a lot of shoe print work. And so he does have reliability that they kind of tried to dismiss. Mm -hmm. And so I do think that that is valid. And I'm glad that I read that because that does make me look at it differently. But the biggest thing that Yen's supporters say is that Yen's original confession was riddled with errors. They say that this proves that he wasn't there. He made all of these mistakes. And this, to me, is kind of the biggest, most important thing in Wright's 454-page document here, because he discredits a lot of that. I'm going to read the breakdown of the Straight From Rights document. He gathers essentially seven common things that people say that Yens got wrong during this confession. Sure. Okay, so these are the seven things that people say and what Wright has to say about those seven things. A. Soaring gave a wrong description of Nancy's clothes. When asked what the victims wore, Soaring said he couldn't remember it, then said jeans. This was the only error he actually made. So that's right saying, yes, that's a mistake that he made. That's undeniable. But that's the only one. That's the only one. Then he goes on to list these other common errors that Yen supporters talk about. B, Soaring's description of the dining table seating arrangements make his account of the fight impossible. Wright says, it certainly does not. This is a complete misrepresentation of the facts. C. Soaring got the location of the dead body of Derek Hasem wrong. Wright says, he did not. This is an outright lie. He got the locations correct, but showed the wrong orientation. D. Soaring identified a butterfly knife as the murder weapon, and it was established that the murder weapon was a single-edged book knife. Wright says, these are two outright lies. 
E, Elizabeth Hasem testified that the murder weapon was a blood-stained, single-edged steak knife found in the dining room table's drawer. Wright says this is another outright lie. F, that one person could not kill two others and in two different rooms. Wright points out this is only an opinion, not an error, and in addition, it's a misrepresentation of the facts. And G, forensics establishes two perpetrators. Wright says it does not. This is only an opinion, not an error, and it's a misrepresentation of the facts. So, Again, in his 450-page document, he goes more into detail with these, but a lot of these, because he was there during the confession Mm -hmm. and during the investigation, he has personal insight onto some of these. Like, Jens never mentions this butterfly knife, but his supporters will talk about it a lot. Right. And... Everyone always emphasizes the fact that he got the position of the body wrong. But Wright points out that he actually very accurately described the position, the curvature of the body. He just drew it angled the wrong way. Sure. And, you know, he says that the jeans robe is the only big discretion and that sometimes details like that do get mixed up. So, you know, there are a lot of other things in Wright's document and... He goes into so, 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 so much detail. But those are sort of the biggest, to me, that he emphasizes. And it's very long, but it is very compelling. Very compelling. And I think you did a really good job of taking, like, the really important parts. And I imagine that reading it, like, he would have to write it in an accessible way. Because... He absolutely does. Otherwise, nobody's going to read that. And if you do read it... If you do decide to go down the rabbit hole and you read the document, the first thing that he tackles is the DNA and the blood evidence. And that is far and above the most complicated one. Sure. So I actually had to skip that and I read the rest of it. And then I went back and read it because it it takes you a while. I had to read it about three or four times that section before I got everything. But the rest of it is extremely accessible. Anything involving like DNA and blood evidence is always... It's just the science behind it is hard for me to understand because my mind is not trained in that way. So then I'm always Absolutely. like, I'm always like, that's that's news to me. Like, yes. you know? and I think that that does bring up something about you know we can only understand so much. We're not necessarily trained to yes. solve crimes or to analyze crime scenes. And definitely, as interesting as it might be for us to try and dissect things. This is how evidence gets misinterpreted because journalists are also not DNA experts. Yes, exactly. So I really want to talk about our theories and our thoughts on this case. What really happened that night? Who was there? And again... This is the part of the podcast where we talk about our thoughts. This is just our opinions. This is, you know, this is not us saying, this is how it happened. This is us saying like, this This is what it seems this like. This is what we think. This is what we think. Yeah, this is what we think. I don't know. And I feel like we've had a couple of cases where I could be easily swayed in any way. <laughs> and yes. I feel like on this one, I I could believe that they were both there and that they were both involved. I could easily believe that it was just Elizabeth and maybe someone else. I could believe that. Could I believe that Jens was there by himself and did this? Yes, I could believe that too. There, I, is, there are so many possibilities and, and yes. I have gone back and forth a few times because even after reading Wright's report, 
and even maybe falling more on the Yin's' guilty side, most of what is in there doesn't necessarily prove that he's guilty. Sure. And there's no concrete physical evidence. There's no physical evidence linking him to the crime or putting him there. Yeah. But after reading it, I don't think that there's any justifiable reason to overturn his conviction or to pardon him either. Right. Right. I don't know. I mean, was there reasonable doubt? I think you could make the argument that because there was no physical evidence, there was. I don't think that they could have both been there because somebody had to have been establishing the alibi. Sure. So I I don't think that they were both there. I do personally believe that they both knew about it. I don't. They both like to say, I didn't know until after. Mm -hmm. I think that they knew whoever actually yeah. went and carried out the murder. I think that the other person yeah. knew. I would, I would agree with that. I, I just don't know. This case is so complicated. It's definitely complicated. There are so many factors that I'm considering, and I feel like I don't have enough that would sway me either way with like a, an extremely confident statement. You know, yeah. like, I just don't know. Here's the thing about me, and I've mentioned this in Patreon episodes. I don't know that I've ever mentioned it in our general episodes, but the thing about me is I think everyone is guilty. <laughs> <laughs> I am never swayed by sure anything that says this was a wrongful conviction. Yes. So I do tend to fall on, they orchestrated this together. Mm-hmm. I think she was the one that stayed in D.C. I think he was the one that went and carried out the murders. But I can see why there is doubt and I can see why some people might believe otherwise. Sure. Let's talk about what we think like a reasonable motive for this would have been. Because I don't think that my parents don't support me financially and that you're so mad about that is a reasonable motive. Yeah. I think a much more reasonable motive is about the abuse, the sexual abuse that I Elizabeth... agree with that. I do think that was probably the actual real motive. Because I feel like like you said that is a reasonable motive for either one of them. Obviously for her being the victim in that situation, that is motive to seek revenge in some way. And if you are as into Elizabeth as Jens was, if someone has harmed the person that you care for, it's easy to get really passionate and heated about that and want justice for them. So I could see that. I just don't think that any of the motives that they stated in their trials made sense. I don't think they were strong enough. I don't think that you know, my parents don't want us to be in a relationship. Like, I don't buy that. I don't buy the whole not financially supporting. I think that it was much more deep, which may be why they didn't talk about it in their trials, you know? And I think that especially at the time, it was not something that was talked about. No. And especially like a mother to a daughter. Exactly. Like, I feel like even still in you know, in the conversations that we have today about abusers, like 95% of the time, it's always a man. 
you know, it's a, it's a dad to a child. It's an uncle to a child. It's a grandfather. It's a stranger. But we don't really talk about a mother sexually abusing her daughter. Like that is not something that is talked about very often. So I, I can imagine that back in 85, that was like, no, we don't, we don't talk about that. I agree with that. And I also just want to talk about how at the time of the murders, Elizabeth and Jens were young. And it doesn't justify by any means. No, 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 no. But they were at this stage in their life where they were obsessed with each other. They were obsessed with these romantic notions. And also, they were so intense in their relationship together. And I don't know, this might just be me being an old soul and being, you know, a granny, but like that intensity of a relationship isn't necessarily a good thing. Almost never a good thing. (laughs) Being passionate and having that type of relationship, that's great. But being so like into your relationship that it is affecting every single thing that you do and say and how you act and you're isolated. It's just very much like not set up for something good to happen. And I do feel like we see that more with younger people. Right. And regardless of who you think carried out the crime and who you think knew about it before, you know that the other person knew about it after and chose to flee with yep. this person and stay in a relationship with them. Yes. That yes. signifies a level of obsession yes. in that relationship that is not good. Not there at all. is nobody on earth that I would go flee on the lamb to protect after I knew they committed murder. No, no, not at all. And I don't think that most people would. No. I don't think that most people who are in a healthy mindset and a healthy relationship would do that. So exactly, exactly. It's just very, very interesting. Now, I want to bring up one more thing, and this is something that we've been talking about a lot lately, and I think that it's something that we will continue to talk about because it is very important. So important. I want to talk about the ethics in true crime documentaries, podcasts, and even as a consumer of this content. So yes, you're listening out there. Yes. The thing about the documentary is it was made one-sided. Yeah. It was made to give the impression that Yins was innocent. Although I don't think that either you or I walked away from it completely convinced of that. No. But it it was slanted more towards that side. That is very true. And there was a lot of missing information because of that. Yeah. And this happens a lot when anybody is making a true crime documentary or podcast, especially when they're arguing a wrongful conviction. Yes. It's a delicate situation and they inevitably leave out details from the other side. And I'm talking serial, the staircase, making a murderer. Yes. All of them. Very popular. Anything that's arguing wrongful conviction, these popular sort of, they get carried out. Yeah. You know, I don't know if it's, them deliberately trying to mislead people or if it's just confirmation bias or some combination. Yeah. But the thing is, is that we as consumers come away believing these people and what they have told us. Sure. And they've given us this evidence, but it's only one side of the evidence. And especially, oh, I feel like people might come at me over this, but especially when people are rallying around and 
creating petitions that are actually impacting whether these people get their cases reopened, which is happening. It's currently happening with some of these cases. We have a responsibility to seek the information in a less biased way. Yes. Because if I believe that somebody has been convicted wrongfully and I'm pressuring the government to open up these cases or to overturn these cases, and I'm doing that based on misinformation or only half of the information, I'm contributing to the problem, right? Right. And this is why I always think everyone is guilty because I don't trust these documentaries. Yes. When I go out yes. and I research them and I find more details, it makes me not trust anything they say, yeah. even if a lot of it is true, even if, yeah. I even remember if we've, they're right. We've had this conversation like back when Making a Murderer season one came out mm-hmm. and you know everyone was like, oh my gosh, the injustice that he, you know, received and blah, blah, blah. And we were like, "Ah." Stephen Avery is 100% innocent and deserves to be free. And we were like, um, (laughs) I don't know. Let's, let's like, let's take a step back. But we do tend to see that a lot with these very popular series, very popular podcasts. And I do think that, you know, from our perspective of being, content creators in this world of true crime, we really do take that to heart and we take it very seriously where we are not trying to present biased information to our listeners. We're not here to influence you and make you think that someone is guilty or that someone is not guilty. And a lot of times we haven't even formed our own opinions on it until after we get the research done. And, you know, we try and find research that comes from, you know, people that were involved during the cases and people who have firsthand knowledge of what was going on, because it's totally easy to just, you know, oh, well, I'm being told from this documentary on Netflix that this happened. And like, we really do try to not do that so that we don't end up only giving half information exactly. or half truth. And man, this case is just a prime example of it because yes. I I did come away from the documentary leaning towards Elizabeth was the perpetrator and mm-hmm. Jens knew about it before, but mm-hmm. was kind of roped in and did not actually commit the crime. And yeah. I, because I'm so sensitive to this and because I know how manipulative deliberately or not deliberately, Mm -hmm. these documentaries can be. I had to go out and actually actively research the other side to get this information on this document. Because if you just look up his name, you're going to get a lot of, oh, he's innocent and all the articles that come out. And look, because that's the side that's talking the loudest. Yes. So I'm not saying he is absolutely guilty of committing the crime. I think there's question. Yep. But I am saying that if you do watch a documentary or listen to a serialized podcast and you think that somebody is wrongfully convicted, you should go out and read why they were convicted in the first place. Yeah. Go find those sources that we're talking about because wrongful convictions do happen, of course, but that's all the more reason to scrutinize these cases as they come up so that we can actually sort out which ones are actual miscarriages of justice and which have just been sensationalized. Exactly. And I think that, you know, it's a great thing that we have access to so much and that, you know, true crime is kind of having its moment right now, which is nice because it's something that interests us and our listeners. And it's great that we can learn about different cases and all of these things. And cases are being solved, you know. Yes. I think that the the pressure on cases is a good, it's thing, a good thing, for sure. Yeah. 
but it just, it depends on how we get there and we're not trying to get there in any sort of unethical way for sure. Yeah. You know, and we want to hear if we ever misstep or if we ever misrepresent something, we want to hear that. Yes, please. Sometimes I think these creators know what they're doing. Yes. Not all the time. I don't think it's always like manipulative or evil or anything like that. But the way you tell a story matters. The way you present evidence matters. The sources you use matter. Yes, absolutely. So that is our very complicated and not simple at all case <laughs> of Elizabeth Hasem and Jens Soaring, which now brings us to our self-care and prepare. For my self-care tip, I am recommending an African exfoliating net sponge instead of a loofah. So if you're like me, you like to use body wash. But you know those loofahs that you can get for 99 cents at the store. Like you're supposed to replace those after like every 30 days because it gets all full of your dead skin and everything. I know that in the past, I have not replaced mine every 30 days. And so I was looking on TikTok and Instagram and I was seeing all of these body care things that you can get. And I found this African exfoliating net sponge. And it's really like just a long strip of mesh and it's pretty like the holes are pretty big and it's really nice because you can stretch it out and like you can easily scrub your back Mm. and so it's designed to reach hard to reach places and it dries really well and they last for like two years a piece okay and i think i got like a four pack for like eight dollars on amazon and so you just put your product on there you lather it up like you would um and you use it and it's not very harsh. Like I have pretty sensitive skin. And so of course I'm not going to scrub it as hard as maybe other people would, but I am, I don't see any irritation the way that I would from, you know, using one of those like mitts or those like scrubber things that have like the bristles and stuff. You know, I can't use any of that, but it's actually pretty good. So can, can you wash it or is Mm -hmm. the theory just because it dries so well, it's not as gross? You can wash it. Mm -hmm. Like you could throw it in a mesh bag in your laundry. Like you would throw it in with your delicates. Okay, cool. Yeah. I use like um, silicone. Oh, yeah. Is it one of those little round ones? Kind of. It looks, it's a little bit bigger. It's like the palm size and it slides on my hand and it's sort of a soft silicone bristly exfoliator and then I wash that in the dishwasher and I use it for the kids we all have our own one and separate ones for hair and everything but I will say that it's not the most exfoliating sure so it would be nice to have something that can exfoliate a little bit more and it sounds like this probably would and I think that the way that you know people advertise it is like if you get those like bumps on your arms or like any any parts of your body that have more bumpy areas or like being hard to reach places like your back, it's nice to be able to get those. So basically just whatever you use, don't use a loofah unless you're replacing (laughs) it every 30 days. (laughs) And my prepare tip is kind of inspired by this case. And it's just, you can really only trust yourself. Don't expect that if you're in a relationship with someone, if you're in a friendship with someone, if you barely know someone, don't expect that they're going to cover for you, that they're going to 
always have your best interest at heart. And I know that that sounds a little bit jaded, but like just be careful with who you trust because at the end of the day, it's only you can only trust yourself and depend on yourself. As much as like I would love to say, yeah, like it, you know, Cassie, if I went to you and said like make me a, an alibi timeline, <laughs> like maybe sorry, you help me, but probably not. And so I probably would as, not. So I'm sorry. As much as we love each other, we're not going to do that. I will say, if I was going to do it for anybody, it would be you. Yep. But I don't think I would. <laughs> I also don't think that. I would need it out of anyone that I know. Like there are people who I'm like, maybe more people would be like, I need an alibi uh, hookup and maybe like they would come to me and ask. I don't know that it would necessarily be me doing the ask. <laughs> right. <laughs> Melanie, who's like, I'm so mad at this person. Can we write a mean note and leave it on their car? <laughs> we'll probably never need an alibi. <laughs> if you know me in real life, you know this to be true. <laughs> But just, you know, be careful with who you trust. And really, at the end of the day, all you can trust is yourself. Okay, Soakers, we'll leave it here for today. Tune in with us next week to hear another tale of true crime. Until then, self-care for the best, prepare for the worst, but most importantly, take care of yourself. We'll catch you next time on Bath & Body Parts. Body Parts merch, snag your shirts, mugs, fanny packs, towels, and more at bathandbodypartspodcast.com slash merch. If you'd like to support the show and get access to VIP perks like ad-free content, early access to episodes, and extra episodes each month, along with special segments and exclusive merch, including the Bath and Body Parts Bath Bomb, you can become a soaker, super soaker, or bath bomber on our Patreon. Just visit patreon.com slash bathandbodyparts to get started.